Howdy. Long time no see. Cowboy Economist walks into a bar. Bartender says, why the long hiatus? <laughs> you get it because it's been, maybe you can't hear the joke properly. Uh, you get it because it's been so long since I've done a video. Uh, I, I think I've used that joke before, but with the state of the planet today, I've been trying to recycle some of the jokes uh, so as not to add to the waste. Well, uh, of course, I apologize for how long it's been for the last video. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but right around February or so, there were a couple of interesting events that took place here in the country. And we thought we'd seen all there was to see uh, so far in the Trump presidency. And this one wasn't even his fault. I mean, some of the stuff that done come afterwards was, but not before that. So, uh, then my, my mother had the audacity to fall one year to the day since she had her colonoscopy catastrophe last year when they accidentally perforated her colon dang near killed her uh this time she fell getting out of bed bruised her knee uh, it was uh, quite the sight to see so that that's been a uh, uh, something that's taken up some time here and she she can't hardly ride a horse yet she's trying so i thought uh i want to apologize first of all i i normally spend a lot of you might find this surprising a lot of time planning these things out and uh this one here oh two hours which which is about one fifth of the time i usually spend so i again i apologize in advance for the low quality of today's show i think you should start every show like that set expectations low and life is wonderful now <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about today was, uh, some weeks ago, I received a book in the mail. And I, I don't often read books uh, unless they're about ranching or one of the wars where America bailed everybody else out, which is pretty much all of them. Uh, and so I wasn't real interested at first until I noticed on the back of the book, where is that right there? There it is. John T. Harvey, well, hell, that's me. Turned out I'd already read it, didn't have to read it again. So I thought I'd give you all uh, a little rundown on the book today and, and let you understand what's going on here. Uh, this uh, Stephanie Colton person here done wrote this, and um, I'm, I'm going to use my whiteboard here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now online, not literally right now, uh, Econometrics. Uh, and this is a board I've been using. I thought, well, hell, I'll just employ this in today's talk. So let me tell you uh, from back when I first read this uh, over the summer, what my lasting impressions were. And uh, part one, first of all, it's a New York Times bestseller. This is the first time I believe that I have ever read a New York Times bestseller and most certainly not been on the back with some little sentence on there about how much I liked it. And this is a heck of a, of a uh, accomplishment if you think about it. I mean, right now, think of all the things that are in the news and then this new book comes out about economics and yet rockets up to number 13 in the New York Times. I believe it was nonfiction hardcover is, is where it came in. So that's an incredible accomplishment by itself. Now. What do I want to tell you about this? Uh, well, first of all, it is covering over, of course, what you've probably heard of uh, as what's called MMT or MMT or Modern Monetary Theory. And it is a, 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 a sort of a, a lengthy and, and finally complete explanation all in one place. I want to come back to that later. All in one place. Uh, so you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's all great, but I don't want to read an economics book. Oh, yeah, you do. It's easy to read. 
She has filled this with many illustrative and relatable examples. The, uh, oh, there, there, there's side stories, there's example after example. She doesn't assume you got it the first time. She brings it up again and brings it up again, and, and not in a way that pounds it into you, that's sort of subtle. That see, see, when you're reading something like this, when you've been told all your life that the government needs to borrow money, in order to fight a war or to uh, fight coronavirus or whatever, when you've been taught that, when you've been taught all the things related to it, it takes a while to dissuade you from these wrong ideas. You can't do it all at once. You have to do a little piece at a time, which is why, like an individual blog entry, is, is never, it's, it's helpful, but this is what I would recommend everybody start with, reading this, because... She brings things up in the first chapter, that then comes up in the fourth chapter, that then comes up in the sixth chapter. So she's slowly bringing you around to where you're going, oh yeah, I guess that does make sense. It's going to be a quite natural feeling as you're reading this book, if you're unfamiliar with it, to find yourself at first thinking, well, well I can't be right. I mean, I can see the logic of what she's saying, but that can't be right. And it's got to sit there. It's got to percolate. It's got to come through your conscience. You have to have a paradigm shift in order to understand what's going on in here. And she understands that and she brings it on to you in a very humble, not at all condescending way. Uh, and so it's an easy book to read. It's a fun book to read. And I highly recommend that, that you do so. But the last thing about the book, before I go into some more details about the actual construction of the narrative, is that it is empowering. This isn't just a book about, hey, look, all these other economists done got it wrong and I got it right, and good for me. This is really and truly a book about how can we solve, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we've got a lot of social problems today. Oh, let's put a, a, a nice light on it. The democracy isn't what it used to be. Uh, the planet's dying. Uh, we have terrible income uh, uneven distribution of income. We've got, uh, uh, well, coronavirus. We've got the rise of, of, of nationalism and white supremacists and, and a lot of things that we would just assume weren't happening right now. Uh, and so how can we address these things? All right? uh, well, well, we can't afford it. We can't afford not to. And I'm going to tell you why the money's not the problem. All right. So, uh, and ultimately, the whole reason for the book is to arm us with the weapons necessary to attack these problems, all right? So the whole book, well, let me show you the construction. You like the way I did that? I had like uh, different blankets over different parts of it and so forth. I, I planned that. That wasn't an accident. All right. So, uh, these are the chapters in the book. And, of course, it starts with an introduction that come, goes over some, you know, various issues and so forth. It introduces what the book's going to be about. And then, immediately, in chapter one, she dives into, you cannot think of the government's budget as a household budget. It is not limited in the way that a household is. The only way for me to get some more of those green pieces of paper is to sell something, like my labor services or whatever. The government spends money into existence. I'm, I'm sorry, I should be more careful with that. The federal government does so. So immediately she hits that first problem, all right, that it's not the same thing as a household, that when you see these people, Republicans and Democrats both, talking about, you know, well, a household, almost every one of Obama's State of the Union addresses, he mentions at some point, well, a household can't keep spending like that. And you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. The problem is the federal government is not a household. It is not the same thing. 
Now, she then talks about, jumps into what, I, I've done a few talks in my day about this uh, whole theory here, and it often comes up, well, if the government's going to spend all this money, we're going to have inflation all over the place, all right? So she quickly dissuades, or, or rather, I, sh I shouldn't say it that way, she puts a more realistic spin on it. Uh, yes, during World War II, when, when we was fighting these guys right here, that's a that's a German anti-tank gun, I believe 37 millimeter. Uh, when we was fighting these bastards, um, we were at full employment, 1.9% unemployment, and we were still spending heavily in deficit, and it was highly inflationary, all right? Uh, there's no question about that. We all knew it. Government policymakers were taking active steps to try to prevent the inflation, because of course, when the economy is producing all it can produce, especially in a situation like World War II, where we are intentionally not producing the things that consumers want, and instead producing the thing to kill those bastards I just showed you. Um, that obviously we're going to have inflation, all right? So, uh, and that's why we had to have wage and price controls. That's why they raised taxes during the war. That's, pardon me. That's why they had bond drives to try to what, to try to drain out of the economy what they were calling dangerous dollars. But in a situation where, say, after the financial crisis, uh, where we've got unemployment that that peaked around ten percent, do you remember all the terrible inflation from the big deficits after the financial crisis? That's right, because it didn't happen that in fact we had extremely low rates of inflation because when you're not at full employment, that's not an issue. So she, she talks about that a little bit there. Now these next two chapters return uh, in a way to what she said up here, but to try to, uh, you know, up here, like I said, she plants in your head the idea that it's not like a household. Well, now let's get a little bit more specific. And uh, in these two chapters right here, what she is trying to explain uh, is that the, the sort of very simple and indisputable accounting identity that if one entity in the macro economy has a surplus or they have earned more than they spent, then another entity must necessarily have a deficit. They must have spent more than they earned. There is no way around that. But when one entity spends more than it earns, the other entity must have earned more than it spent. Absolutely no way around that. Uh, well, uh, she, she abstracts away from trade for the moment, so don't think about that. But we're just thinking about the public and private sector. When the government has a, uh, well, I guess she, maybe she does the debt first and then the deficit second. I don't remember. But uh, at any rate, in these two chapters here, what we've got is uh, the government's deficit is your surplus. The government's debt is your asset. And then she adds in some, uh, some, some, uh, illuminating thoughts about adding trade in as well and it not being as simple and straightforward as people have been explaining it either. Alright, so in these chapters here, let's see if i got a pen laying around here. I sure do. I'm going to use horned frog purple. So, in those five chapters right there, she's pretty much laying out uh, the basic understanding of this MMT or MMT as I call it. Uh, now, down here, she sort of steps aside and says, you know, well, um, by the way, what this means is you can never argue that we can't afford a policy because we don't have the dollar bills, all right? We can never say that 
Social Security is going to go bankrupt because we ain't got no money. Now, it may be a problem on resources, and she is very good about that throughout the entire book. She never promises more than this can can uh, can uh, deliver. Uh, and she's explained, hey, this is just the way it works. I, I know, and I'm trying to tell you that once I've told you the way it works, now let's think about how we can use this new understanding to solve problems. And the first thing she says is, again, as I say, uh, hang on. Don't let anybody tell you we can't afford it because we don't have the dollar bills because the United States government creates new dollar bills every single day of the year. All right. Uh, you know, I, I thought that this most recent uh, incident with the CARES Act and the coronavirus was especially illustrative, if I, uh, I may use that word, that. You know, before, during the financial crisis, people were saying, well, we borrowed all that money from China. And uh, we were trying to argue on this side of it. Well, no, we didn't borrow it from China. That actually that had to do with the trade deficit and so forth. Uh, well, what a simple example today. When we had the CARES Act passed, which was what, uh, you know, some months ago now, uh, all these uh, trillions of dollars, uh, did we borrow that from China? China, the country where it started, the China, the, the, the China that's going to have the worst economic uh, uh, year it's had in probably a half a century? Did we borrow from Europe, where they were experiencing the same problems as us? Did we borrow from Mars, where nobody lives and there's no money? No, we just printed it. All right, oh, I shouldn't use that expression because that's, that, that's got a lot of other connotations. Uh, but... Uh, we spent the money into existence. There is never a problem of a shortage of money. There is a problem of a shortage of resources. And of course, we were short at the beginning of this of many resources we desperately needed. All right? uh, but we were never short of money. And we proved that when they passed that and, 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 and got the spending done, lickety split. All right. So chapter six. It's not going to be because of money, all right? If we, if we don't want to run a program, we can never argue, whether you be a Republican or one of those danged uh, establishment Democrats, you can never say, oh, well, we can't afford it. Uh, we're going to have to cut back on spending. Households have to cut back. I want to punch those people just like I want to punch Nazis. Now, uh, down here in Chapter 7, is, is one of my favorites. Uh, because now you've worked your way through the model. She has stopped in chapter six and said, hey man, they're screwing you over. They are choosing not to fund Social Security. They are choosing not to fund the arts. They are choosing to allow people to be under the poverty line in what's supposedly one of the greatest countries in the world. They are choosing all those things. All right? So then in chapter seven, she says, oh, but there are deficits that matter. The one that doesn't matter is the federal government deficit, uh, at least not in the way we thought it did before. But there are deficits that matter. The deficit of good jobs, the deficit of health care, the deficit of education, and so on and so on and so on. So here she's building, and I, and I love the subtitle of the book. It's, uh, I'm going to hold this up here where you can see it, The Birth of the People's Economy. That, that's my favorite part, because again, uh, economics is about policy. When I teach an economics course, we go about, I don't know, four-fifths of the course learning about how the economy works, and then I stop and say, what was the point of all that? What's economics really about? It's about policy. It's ultimately about policy. What can we do to improve people's lives? And that's what this chapter here is all about. Now, she then finishes off with this piece is sort of a summary and by way of where we go forward from here. I have to tell you, she starts the chapter with a really depressing story about uh, her and, and Warren Mosler going in and talking to a, a politician that you would have thought was otherwise um, well inclined to want to carry out actions that would get rid of these deficits that truly matter. And they explained all this to him 
And apparently the guy sat there like, yeah, no, I, I don't believe it. Uh, or I can't say that out loud. Lord have mercy. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much, as someone who has been a practicing economist and rancher for 34 years, how much help it is to us that there are non-economists out there reading this sucker like crazy, trying to spread the word, because we can't do this by ourselves. We are up against people who are like, like the Krugmans and the Summers and the uh, Rogoffs of the world who, they just can't put their head around it. That they can't, you know, I, I've, I've met Rogoff, seems like a nice fella. Um, and I think that his heart is with these issues down here. Krugman, same way. I don't know about Summers. Uh, and so and they, they just can't wrap their head around it. Nor can politicians. It must be the people that force this change. It must come from the bottom up because it ain't coming from the top down, believe you me. The economics discipline doesn't know what it's talking about, except, except my part. Now, Let's see here. That's the outline of the book. So I wanted to, look, look I had one more. Um, I, I wanted to close off with this, that this is when somebody asks you, you know, well, I want to understand this MMT stuff, or just simply, I want to understand, what can we do? I mean, you look around right now, and, and it's starting to look like the walking dead, uh, and without the fun parts. The, uh, surely people across the globe must be feeling hopeless right now especially when they're given the advice from the people who say, well, we can't afford that, all right? Uh, and so when you know somebody who understands that these are the true problems right here and they want to know the route to solving this, it's very simple. You tell them to read this. It is easy to read. It is fun to read. I, I got to tell you, when they sent me the book, uh, and I wrote my, my, my uh, endorsement, and actually it's a much longer one here. I'll read it to you in a minute. And uh, Dr. Kelton said, uh, did you actually read the whole thing? Because, uh, you know, I don't know if you know how this works, you know, but you, you, you've been assigned, uh, well, not assigned, you've been asked to review a book for a journal or something like that. You kind of skim through it. Uh, yeah, it says so-and-so. I read every word because it was easy to read. It was enjoyable to read. And this is important. Really, really important. All right. Now. So, uh, yeah, the first thing you tell people to read, it, it covers all the bases. It's not like, oh, you should read this blog, and then this blog, and then this blog. When you have 300 pages to lay out an argument, you can do so carefully. And there ain't nothing in here that Paul Krugman can come around and say, well, it says so-and-so. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say you can spend forever and solve all our problems. It says resources are the problem, but money is not. All right? So... When you, when you write an individual blog post, you can't cover everything. And so whatever you don't talk about is what Krugman's going to criticize, because that's the kind of guy he is. Uh, and so with here, it covers it all. And, and, and as I've been mentioning this over and over, I don't know if you can see that word. Yeah, you can see it, humble. Uh, not only is she humble in the sense that she is not trying to... Uh, do you ever notice this with some of these high-profile uh, economics blogs out there? That, that there's a real sort of subtle condes, condens, uh, condensation. <laughs> what's wrong with me? Uh, condescension. Um, I know what's wrong with me. Uh, it's hot in here. I had to turn off the window air conditioner unit in order to make the video. Um, condescension. That there are times when I feel like that the authors of those things say, well, I'm really bright, so I'm going to have to dumb this down a little bit for you so you can understand it. That never happens. And yet, I've known her for years, she is really bright. And she can, she could have described this in terms that people couldn't have followed, 
but that's not her goal. She wants you to understand. And so, and again, uh, in terms of humility, it doesn't claim for this approach things it can't really deliver. So, let me close off by reading you. Uh, on the back of the book, they only used the one line because they got so many people that said it was a great book. All right? So they had to narrow down uh, what they had each person. And then they, they had an enclosure in here with the longer quotations. This here is from a fellow named John Harvey. The deficit myth is a triumph. It is absorbing, compelling, and most important of all, empowering. Embracing a well-researched framework that focuses on how real-world economies actually operate, she lays out a realistic path to true economic prosperity. It is an approach that focuses on Main Street and not Wall Street, and will permit us to not only revitalize the struggling middle class, but address critical social problems like chronic unemployment, Poverty, health care, and climate change. And don't forget, Pavlina Chernova's book just came out recently. I got it in the mail. I haven't read it yet on the job program, which fits hand in glove and not in the OJ sense. Hand in glove in with this right here. It's perfect. Uh, but I'm sorry, I'm not done. Let's see here. Where am I? Oh, that's, that's, that's some other Joker's quote. Where's mine? We, of course, face many binding constraints on our ability to act. But Kelton argues that the intentional underemployment of our own resources that results from the pervasive influence, I used a lot of big words, of deficit myths should not be one. We have needed this book for a very long time. Everyone should read it and then reread it before it's too late to change course. I hope I don't take this long between this video and my next one. May force be with you.